One thing that I like about having a Bible in the pulpit and bringing a Bible to church is that it is something you can touch and feel. So much of our faith revolves around what can't be seen. I don't mean that there isn't evidence for it. What I mean is that faith is supposed to be about trusting in what you can't fully see. That, that, that's kind of part and parcel of the definition of faith, isn't it? That it involves a trust that goes beyond what you can see with your physical eyes. Or maybe what you can assure yourself of with physical evidence. Physical evidence is extremely important. God is not calling us to be blind, but he is calling us to a kind of trust that requires faith. And so there's a lot about our faith in, up to and including the fact that sometimes we just feel like, Jesus, I want a hug. Have you ever felt that way? You don't have to raise your hand if you feel shy about admitting it. But here I am at 50 years old to tell you, sometimes that's my most desperate prayer to the Lord. I need a hug. You might think that sounds wimpy, but what it's really saying is, I need help. I feel disconnected or lost, or I'm stressed, or I'm at sea, or I'm afraid. And I'm calling on you, Lord, not just to take away my fear. That, that's where it starts. That, that's, that's where it starts in the cradle. Ah, I want something. I need something. The baby doesn't even know. It's just, ah. But a mother will say, that's the hungry cry. Ah, ah, that's the angry cry. Ah, that's the scared cry. That's the tired cry, right? But all the baby thinks is, want, want, need, need. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Okay. God loves us. You can come to God. Oh, friend. You can come to God. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But the Lord hears the cry of your heart. That's the hungry cry. That's the tired cry. That's the frightened cry. And as the Lord matures us, we start to realize what I need is you. I may be afraid and I may feel like I need courage, and indeed, maybe I do need courage, but where will I find courage? Who can encourage me? The Lord. So what I need more than courage is the Lord. It's like uh, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion and Dorothy, all looking for the wizard, for what the wizard could give. And then what Dorothy ultimately found is that what she needed was there all the time because there's no place like home. Well, God is your home. And he's there. Remember, she wakes up and says, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. Maybe it's as you and I enter into the kingdom of heaven that we look up into the face of Jesus and say, and you were there. And he is. And so you can say, I need a hug, but it's helpful if you realize what you're really saying in that is, I need you. And you know it's not only helpful, it's hopeful because what Jesus says is, you can have me. But I want you. Jesus says, you can have all of me, but only if I can have all of you. 
You say, oh, so God is just sitting there waiting? No, he's already made the step. He has already given all of himself to us. Today, as we come to the teaching about Saul in the Samuel story that revolves around the fall of Saul, and I don't mean the autumn of his years, even though it is uh, autumn approaching in our days and the autumn of my years seems to be dawning at 50, but I'm referring to a kind of fall that is a failure. That is the failure of Saul's leadership. The guys in the booth can bring up my slides for me, please. In talking about the fall of Saul, we're talking about a problem of the heart. Integrity of heart is the essence of what God wants to do in you and I. Integrity of heart is the essence of what is on display in the successor to Saul that, by God's grace, we'll hear more about next year in a sermon series, but who is familiar to most of us who have read from the Bible or gone to church. And if he's not familiar to you from that, even if you've never been a big part of church or haven't read the Bible, you're probably familiar with King David. King David is one whom God says, and in fact, our first, uh, first hint of David's coming in the story of Samuel comes in chapter 13. It doesn't mention David by name, but in it God speaks about how he is looking for a man who will follow his heart and follow his will. That is a man who will follow the heart of God and obey the will of God, and that man is David. But it's not just David. It's you or I. It is us if we will have a heart after God. And that's where integrity of heart takes its focus. Jesus has integrity of heart, and he will give integrity of heart to everyone who says, help me, Jesus. So Jesus is here to help today. He wants to lead you and I through this scripture and speak to us. I discovered something as I was studying for this message. I've been preparing for this message and the series, the, the sub-series, the little internal series that we're embarking on this week. It's the conclusion of the Samuel story series that we've been in. So today, next week, and the week following, as God allows, we will come to the conclusion of this series, and it'll take us to the end of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel and in it, in these last three chapters that we are looking at in this series, in about the middle of the book, we see a successive series of missteps, mistakes, that I have called collectively the fall of Saul. It's going to be a long time before Saul actually dies on a hill, falling on his sword in battle. Spoiler alert, that's how things end in the earthly life of Saul. But the failure of that moment is really the fruit of seeds that are sown in these three chapters. And in these chapters, we see that there is something defective in the way that Saul approaches the Lord, his attitude, his heart towards the Lord. So it's something important for you and I to look at. But what I've discovered as I've been preparing the messages in detail, the, the broad stroke of them has been fleshed out for some time, but... Or, or, or at least structured for some time, but in coming to look at it, I found there's so much here that I am uh, a bit uh, overwhelmed by it myself. That's maybe not a good thing to say at the beginning of a sermon. It sort of signals people, well, maybe 
if you're overwhelmed by it, what am I going to think? I, I want to prepare you. That it, it, it's sort of like coming out into the middle of the ocean on a boat with a, with a uh, marine biologist, let's say, who's never been down to the bottom of the sea himself, but he's studied it a lot. And you're standing there on the surface of the sea, and you ask the question, well, what's under the surface? <laughs> That's a big answer, isn't it? There is so much under the surface of this sea of scripture that you and I are sailing on that we're going to dip into it, and I'm going to try and bring up some treasures that I think are there. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will help me to do that and help you to receive it. But I want to say there's far more here than I can fully say, not only today, but even in the weeks to come. And I think in part that's because what I'm discovering is the story of Saul is in some way the story of us all. I'm going to make you repeat that because it'll help you and I to remember it. Say this, the story of Saul is the story of us all. Now, right away, there could be a little bit of confusion about that. Well, which Saul do you mean? Because as it turns out, there's a Saul in the Old Testament. And by the way, that's where the Samuel story is. We are in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But there's also a very significant Saul in the New Testament. Most of us know him more commonly by the Greek and Latin version of his name, which is Paul. And those are two completely different men, except that they do have the same name. And you know what? Names mean something. And so there is something of a connection there that I want to talk about as we get further into this. But the point I guess I'm really trying to start with here is I invite you to do something in this message. And to describe what that is, I want to share with you an image that I just saw this week, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I'm sitting in a chair, and I'm wearing armor. I remember the armor. It's like a brass breastplate and shin guards, but it's all made of plastic. It's probably from a toy store that sells Roman soldier costumes or something like that. It's a black and white photo. I'm probably about 11 years old. It's from my church. My mother was the Christian education director, the children's pastor, essentially, at our church, which meant that I got enlisted in doing stuff for children's ministries. But it was a good, good way for me to, uh, to develop the attitude that we see in Samuel as a young kid. Speak, Lord, I'm listening. It was not so much my readiness, but my mother's determinedness that you're going to be part of this because I need somebody and you're available, and so you're going to do it. But I was interested in acting, as you know, and so my first role that I remember playing in church was King Saul. <laughs> and this week, at that party, I saw a series of pictures that I was not prepared for. <laughs> I did not know that my background had been culled uh, secretly and cleverly and wonderfully by my wife and brought to those who can make such things into a video. But it was interesting to me that that picture a large black and white glossy picture from, oh, 40 years ago now of me as Saul was flashed before my eyes right before I preach about the fall of Saul. <laughs> the fear and foolishness and frustration of Saul. And it was as if the Lord was saying, happy birthday, you are Saul. <laughs> Way back from the beginning. You know what? The Lord loves Saul. He anointed him with his spirit. He graced him with prophecy. 
He crowned him with authority. He entrusted him with dignity and power. He granted him victory. And he united the tribes into a kingdom under the throne of Saul. He did all this, and the Lord himself says, I would have done more. But there was a problem in the heart of Saul. And it's a problem in the heart of us all. Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would reveal our hearts. Let us not hide ourselves from you, Lord. We ask that you would show us our inner place, our inner person, our inner Saul, and help us, Lord, to fall not into fear and foolishness and frustration, but rather on our knees in faith, trusting patiently in you that we would be people with a heart after you. Amen. The fall of Saul in three parts begins today in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Turn there if you will. And I want to suggest that the fall of Saul is predicated upon a problem that you and I can call impatience. The impatience of Saul. Now, I want to place this in the context of where we've been. So we are coming to the 13th chapter. And the last lesson that we had from chapter 13 came from the speech that Samuel the prophet made over the entire nation in which you and I were reminded by him that a life of integrity bears witness to God's holiness. And really, everything about the fall of Saul, the missteps and mistakes that he makes are all sort of telegraphed in the chapters that we've already seen and the things that we've already seen, both positive and negative, about how people might act towards God and about how God responds to people. So coming into this section of Scripture, we're supposed to be acutely aware that real and honest worship with all the heart is what God is looking for, and that someone who worships the Lord in that way will receive integrity of heart from the Lord, and that integrity will bear fruit in their lives and will reveal the holiness and worthiness of God in the world and will ensure the security of the kingdom. So, on that basis, Saul has everything he needs to rule wisely and live obediently. But there's one thing that God does not give, indeed that God cannot give. You say, is there anything that God cannot do? Well, there are certain things that God would not do because to do them would be to deny himself. And one of those things is God cannot choose for you what you must willingly choose for yourself. Now, you and I would never know to be responsive to God and receptive to his love unless God had made us and revealed himself to us and by his love drawn us to himself. So there's nothing that we can do apart from him. But there is a point of response. And the response is one that involves freedom. God has made us to be free. Amen. I've been engaged for the last several months in teaching my daughter to drive. This involves her being in the driver's seat and me being in the passenger seat. This is how she learns. 
Now, she had to be graduated to that process. Obviously, there was written work and a course that she completed. She had to be licensed. You could consider all of those things as uh, comparable in this analogy to Saul's calling and Saul's anointing. But there's a point at which God says, now you're in the driver's seat. The car doesn't belong to you, and you're not ready to go on your own. I'm right next to you, but you need to be able to follow my instructions with the wheel in your hand. The Lord does this in our lives. He says, I'm putting a choice in front of you. Here's blessing, here's cursing. I'm telling you which way to go. It's like me in the car saying, turn right, turn left. This is where we're going. But you've got to follow. Sometimes I may say right and the turn goes to the left. That's a problem. And you know what? The stakes are high. Turn left in front of oncoming traffic, it could be a fatal flaw. So the reality of our ability to make choices is real because God's dedication to our freedom is real and God's dedication to our maturity is real. But the choices matter and God's guidance is also real. And so Saul, in resisting the right response to God, begins with impatience to pave the way for his own fall. We'll be looking at this, as I said, over the next three weeks. But today, I think the essence of the message is don't rush God and don't force your will. We say God's timing is always right. We say God's timing is always perfect. But we need to acknowledge it doesn't always feel that way in the moment. Amen? Amen. It's true, right? Sometimes we feel like, God, what are you waiting for? God, why are you taking so long? No, God, not yet. I'm not ready. I remember doing my swimming lessons as a kid in the Olympic-sized pool at the local college, and they said, now you're going to go off the high dive? No, I'm not ready. Yes, you're ready. No, I don't want to go. Yes, you're going. Swimming in that deep end of the pool and not wanting to be in the deep end of the pool. Sometimes God is saying to us, it's time for you to go out into the deep. And we're saying, no, I'm not ready. And God says, it's time. Impatience is a problem because patience is important. What goes into impatience? What are the ingredients of impatience? We've talked so much about patience this year, in this year of patience, that it's probably worthwhile for us to look at a negative example. And I'm sorry to say, as much as the Lord loves Saul and as much as you and I can find something familiar in Saul's story, the reality is Saul is most important to us, perhaps, in the ways that he shows us what not to do. And I think if I have an admonition from the Lord and seeing that picture of me from a little kid King Saul, it's the Lord saying, remember, you too could be like Saul. You know the old saying, there but for the grace of God go I? You and I could fall like Saul because all human beings are susceptible to the things that go into impatience. And those things include, very basically, fear, foolishness, which is knowing that God is right but choosing to do what you want, that's foolishness. And frustration. I want it now. I need it this way. It's not going to work unless it works according to my way of doing it. Those are the elements of impatience 
and they are the steps to a fall. They're proud and foolish. They're fearful and anxious. They tend to blind the heart and the soul. But in the Lord, we have an invitation to see, to walk in the light, to walk in the faith, and to live by that faith, and to operate in trust, trusting God, relying upon the wisdom that he grants by his spirit and by his word and through his people. And that faith and that trust and that wisdom that all comes from God and operates in our life, it brings forth a harvest of fruitfulness and spiritual fulfillment. We will see, ultimately, that Saul becomes a very bitter, very depressive, very angry, very vengeful, very jealous, very insecure man because of his impatience, his pride, his fear, his greed, his egotism, his foolishness. Fear, foolishness, and frustration lead to impatience of heart and imprudence of action. In other words, a lack of wisdom, a rashness, a foolishness. But trust, hope, and love in the Lord. We might say faith, hope, and love. These three abide, and the greatest of these is love, and it leads to the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Saul becomes a man who cannot control the kingdom because he cannot control himself because he is under the sway of a spirit that is at odds with the spirit of God. Israel's first king, Saul, would not be her last king and would not be her best king. That would be reserved really for David and the son of David, ultimately the anointed one, the Christ who is Jesus. Instead, Saul's impatience and lack of trust in the Lord provide evidence to you and I that there was pride in his heart. And just like Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before a fall. In fact, if you read the chapter of 16 of Proverbs, you'll find so many little apparently disconnected aphorisms there, little proverbs that collectively say so much about what was wrong with Saul, what was right with David, even though both David and Saul fall. As I mentioned, we're going to be studying David next year, so it's premature for me to get into too much detail about him, but most of us are aware that one of the signal moments in David's life and rule was when he bitterly disobeyed the Lord and breached morality and the law in the most egregious ways. He lusted after a woman that he saw. He in, 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 uh, he arranged to have an adulterous affair with her, even though she was married to another man who was serving in David's army. And when she became pregnant with David's child, and David realized that this would expose his immoral and unethical and illegal behavior, he arranged for the man to come home so that he could try and make it look as though the man were the, were the father of this child of his wife. And when the man, through his own dedication and integrity of heart, refused to go home to his own wife when his soldiers didn't have the same privilege and he instead spent the night there in the palace, David realized the only way to solve the situation according to his own view, his fleshly view of it, was to arrange for the murder of the man in battle. So David was an adulterer and a murderer and he used his role as king to facilitate those ends. That is extraordinary sin, is it not? 
If I told you about a king like that, and then I said there was another king before him, and what did that king do wrong? He offered a sacrifice to God. Well, that sounds good. Weren't they supposed to do that? Yes, it was a sacrifice that God said he should, should be made, but he was supposed to let the priest do it, but the priest was running late, and so the king did it anyway because the battle depended on it. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, wait a minute. I don't understand this. David, David committed adultery and had a man murdered? And Saul just did a ceremony wrong? What kind of righteousness is that? Do you know that's an argument that people make? That the, the, the moral logic of the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible is defective because if God would say David is good when he does something like that and Saul is bad when he does something simply wrong in worship, what kind of a God is that? But you know what that shows? The blindness of people not understanding the reality of the word, not going under the surface of the scripture. God doesn't say David is good and Saul is bad. <laughs> Instead, what God says through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah in a different era is the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God. God searches the heart. The difference between Saul's behavior and David's behavior is significant and will require more study than just what we're going to talk about today. But suffice it to say several things. One, worship matters to God a lot. And there's no such thing as just a ceremony when it comes to bringing your heart to God. In fact, what God is looking past is all the ceremony. Ceremony has meaning in as much as symbols have value. But what God is looking at is what is rooted in the heart. And so what was evident in Saul's heart was not just a sense of, well, this isn't happening fast enough. I better help things along. But I'm going to grab hold of the reins and do what I think needs to be done because I'm afraid God won't do it. And that very statement, I'm afraid, that's what's in the heart of Saul, and that's what's in the heart of us all. Fear. What if God doesn't give you what you really want? What if he doesn't do it in the time that you need it to be done? Fear, greed, a determination. I'll make it happen. I'll put it in the right language. Oh, God, I'm doing this because this is what you want for me. This is what you want for us. Isn't this what you want? But God's not fooled by that. And David knew that. That's why when the prophet Nathan came to David and said, you're the man that has done this, David didn't deny it, didn't try to hide it anymore. Instead, he fell before the Lord in repentance. You say, well, Saul says he's sorry. Saul says, Saul says but David is, and that's the difference. Pride goes before a fall. Impatience brings frustration. But the negative model of Saul gives us a positive lesson. Live by faith with patient trust, trusting in God, obeying his will, and you'll be able to receive his love. His love is coming to you in any case, but you're not ready to receive it if you're not ready to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that his word is true and that he won't deny it. But when you believe those things, you'll experience God's love and the fruitfulness that comes from faith. And if you don't believe those things, no matter how much you say you believe them, no matter how many ceremonies you put yourself through, impatience will be beating in the heart of you and I. And that impatience 
reflects fear, foolishness, and frustration. So these are three things that we are going to look at in every single one of these messages over the next three weeks. The fear, the foolishness, and the frustration of Saul because they are evident in all three of these chapters. And in a way, I would suggest that his fear is on most prominent display in the first of them. His foolishness is on most prominent display in the second middle chapter. And that in the last of this sequence, his frustration becomes most evident. But in each one of the chapters, all three elements are present, and they'll provide a structure for us as we look at the chapter. So let's look today at chapter 13, and Saul's fear that reflects itself in what I've called his seventh-day slip in the first nine verses of the chapter. And there is a fear about a scattering of the kingdom that Saul is trying to prevent, and the irony is, in his foolishness, he actually paves the way for the scattering of the kingdom. And so he slides further and further into these very things that he's trying to run away from. I mean, isn't that the irony? That Saul is afraid of not having the strength and favor of God, but it's because he relies on his fear more than his faith that he actually slides into that reality. And again, this is something that all of us can relate to. So let's look at these three sections of the chapter. And as we go along, I'm going to try and make the connections for you and I as to how these things relate to the rest of the Bible and also to the rest of us. Now, by the way, there's an interesting but not necessarily too interesting note to be made about the first verse. I say it's interesting because it's a sort of notorious defect in the transcription of the original Hebrew, but it's probably not uh, altogether that interesting to the, to the reader who's most looking for what the essence of the, of the chapter is about, which is a good way to look at it. But it's possible that you may have a translation that says something like, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Israel. That is, in fact, a common translation of the verse. It is, in fact, an ancient translation of the verse. There are very old Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible that, that have that uh, statement in them. However, the original Hebrew texts that we have don't generally say that. Some of them say pretty much what you see here. Saul was a year in becoming king, and when he had reigned over Israel two years, the rest of this story happened. But actually, most of the Hebrew texts just have a kind of a blank there. It may be that this was something that was added later by an editor because it's kind of a typical rubric, kind of a typical organizing title. When we see in 2 Samuel uh, the, uh, the reign of David being described, it starts with a similar statement, David being uh, uh, 40 years old and reigning 40 years and so forth. Uh, so it, it, it is a little bit uncertain exactly what the original text says there. My, my preference is that I believe it's uh, stating that it took about a year for these, these transactions to occur by which Saul was called, anointed, crowned, and had the victory. And then another year passes before we get to <clears throat> excuse me, the place that we are at now. So you'll remember that he had the victory, Saul gave his speech, let us imagine then that perhaps another year has gone by. So Saul's had a couple of years of rulership. He's established himself as a warrior. He is establishing a, uh, a, a government. Um, there is a, a stabilizing uh, process at work. And then 
something destabilizing, something threatening rears up. First of all, remember that in this era, one of the chief problems that the Israelites have is that they are surrounded by this more um, uh, resourced, um, more militarily sophisticated people group, the Philistines. However, those Philistines don't have the, um, the, the um, skill that the Israelites have in the hill country. And so the Philistines are sort of uh, the, the overlords of the lower regions uh, that are um, nearer to the coastline. And this is where they have significant cities. And they, uh, they occupy that territory. Um, in the hill country, uh, the Israelites have a little more autonomy, but they're still subject to raiding parties of the Philistines. And so there's this tension, a kind of a, not exactly a cold war, but not exactly a hot war, kind of a sporadic war that goes on and an uneasy relationship between the two people groups. We'll see it towards the end of the chapter that the, the Philistines actually have, a, as I say, a kind of occupying power, almost like the Romans later on, except not nearly as organized, not nearly as powerful. But the Philistines can impose their will on the, on the Hebrew people. Uh, to such a degree that the Hebrew people aren't able to make weapons for themselves. They're not allowed to have blacksmiths. They have to go down into the regions of the Philistines and pay the Philistine blacksmiths to make um, implements of farming for them, to make, to make hoes and to make plows and things like this. And those Philistine blacksmiths will not make weapons. So the Hebrews are an oppressed people in this era. And their problem is primarily with the Philistines. So Saul, as king, says we need to have a draft. He conscripts 3,000 Israelites. And he divides them into companies. 2,000 are with him in a place called Michmash, which we will talk about more in a little bit. Um, and that is in the hill country of Bethel. Remember, Bethel is uh, the place that was also a, a key point of worship in those days. And then there are a 1,000 that are with Saul's son. Now, this is the first time that you and I are hearing about the son of Saul. And that's why some people suggest that the first verse reads something a little bit different because it would seem that Saul is older, perhaps, than we would expect him to be here. So it's not exactly sure what phase of life this is in, but it's also possible that Saul had his son rel uh, relatively young, as was typical in that day. In any case, his son Jonathan, who is the prince, is old enough to be a, a soldier himself at this point. And he's a captain of a certain number of these troops, a thousand of whom are with him in Gibeah. Gibeah is Saul's hometown in the tribal region of Benjamin. Now, Saul does something that is meant probably to be magnanimous here. He's collected 3,000 soldiers from the men of Israel, and he sends the rest home. He doesn't say, I'm going to recruit everyone. He says, the rest of you can go home. I've got the 3,000 that I need. There may be a, a bit of a parallel here to the story uh, of the leadership of Gideon the judge that you may recall. In any case, Jonathan has a victory. He defeats, with the smaller number of troops, by the way, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, uh, a city or a town in that same region where he is encamped. And the Philistines hear, hey, now the son of Saul has had a victory. And Saul is making sure that everyone in Israel knows. It's kind of like, hey, the tide is turning. I want all the Hebrew people to hear that Jonathan has had a victory. And so all Israel hears that Saul, that is the kingdom of Saul, 
and the army of Saul has defeated this garrison of the Philistines and that the Philistines are becoming particularly aroused by this to anger. It says that they think that the, the Jewish people stink. They think that these Israelites stink. And what it's saying euphemistically is they're upset with them. They're like, we can't let this happen. We can't let them have these kinds of victories over us. And so the Philistines begin to muster the might of their army to fight. So you see what's happening here is tensions are boiling over. And where there's a bit of a victory, and Israel might say, yay, the, the, the favor is with us, all of a sudden there's a greater battle to be fought now immediately ahead. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They come up and they encamp at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. This, you'll remember, is essentially where Saul and his 2,000 men were. Now, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, because if you're facing off against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and however many more troops, and there's only 2,000 of you, you are in trouble. <laughs> you would agree? Those are not good numbers. Those are not good odds. That's a problem. The people were hard-pressed. Not just the soldiers, but even the people in the region were scared to death. They can't leave town. They can't go. Uh, they can't even flee. They're trapped, and they're in direct threat. They're in the crosshairs of the target of the enemy. What are they going to do? This is extremely important. The people hide themselves anywhere they can. Caves, holes in the ground, rocks in the, in the hills, tombs, graveyards, cisterns. You know, uh, uh, probably these rock uh, vessels for holding water, they hide because they are afraid they're going to be wiped out. And their fear is reasonable. That is exactly the intent of the Philistines. Some of them are actually able to get away. Some of these Hebrew people cross the fords of the Jordan. They go to Gad and Gilead. They're getting out of the region. They're leaving the promised land because how can they hold on to it? But Saul is still there at Gilgal, but everybody with him is trembling. The Hebrew idiom is hearts melting, quaking with fear. Now, you may remember that there was a practice that Samuel had said to Saul when he was crowned, and it was at the, at the appropriate season, you are to wait for me seven days. I will come and tell you what to do. I will offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice was giving themselves wholeheartedly to God, and the priest's role, the prophet's role, was to help the people and the king to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord. And hear what the word of the Lord was. Now Saul does it. And people are fleeing right and left. And people are frightened and people are hiding. What do you do when your entire army, which is already egregiously outnumbered, is, is you've got deserters. And you say, where is this whole company gone? They went hiding in the hills. They were in the caves. They left. They headed out for Gilead. So Saul is trying to hold on to this army. He's trying to hold on to this kingdom. And he's waiting seven days and no Samuel. Where is Samuel? And can you imagine what people are saying? Maybe Samuel can't get here. Maybe the Philistines have closed off every passage. Samuel's old. Maybe he died. Maybe Samuel left to go to Gilead. Maybe Samuel is smart and hiding in a cave. Maybe we don't care. What do we have to do to get God to move on our behalf? We're dying here, Saul. And so Saul says, all right, 
Bring me the offering. Bring the offering here and the peace offering. I will do it. And he does. Because he was afraid. People hiding in caves, holes, rocks, tombs, and cisterns. That's not just this moment. There is vivid evidence in that behavior of a general fear that is gripping the people in this moment. But it is also a recurring and consistent central concern of the entire Bible. And I want to show you just a little bit of that in these moments. People hiding from what they fear bookends the Bible. Go to the first book in the Bible. What's the first book in the Bible? Genesis. Genesis. People hide from God. Go to the last book of the Bible. What's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. People hide from God. There is a very significant recurring theme here, and it pops up throughout the scriptures. Far too many places for me to reference all of them. But in Genesis, in the garden, right back at the beginning, when people were being misled by the enemy, the enemy encroaching around them, the enemy coming to the woman and saying, oh, did God tell you that you couldn't have any of this fruit? Oh, no, that's not what he said. He just said that we couldn't have this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We couldn't eat its fruit. Oh, the only reason he told you that is because he doesn't want you to be like him because he knows that once you eat it, you'll be like him. You see, if you are not going to get what you want from God because you can't trust what God says, you better reach out and grab it yourself. And the woman looked and saw that the fruit was good, good to the sight of her eyes, good to the appetite in her stomach, good according to her fleshly wisdom. And not only she, but the man as well. They ate of the fruit. And when they did, they saw how uncovered they were. And they were afraid. And so they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And God called out, where are you? It's like God calling out to Samuel. But instead of the response of, here we are, Lord. Say what you want to say. Tell us what to do. They hide. And why do they hide? The man says, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. I was afraid that you were unhappy with me, God. I was afraid that you might punish me. So I hid myself. Gideon, that judge I was just talking about, when the Lord comes to him and says, hey, almighty man of valor, Gideon is hiding out from another people group that are oppressing the Israelites in that era, the Midianites. In fact, Saul was hiding out when they were trying to make him king. It's the exact same word that is used there, just like in English. So in Hebrew, the same word for hiding, Saul was hiding among the luggage. Maybe he was afraid, I'm not ready for this role. And you might say, well, maybe he was right. But the problem is, what would make him ready was not hiding in fear, but instead trusting in God. So the hiding does the very opposite of the thing that it's supposed to do. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, declared judgment on the nation of Eden, a neighboring and cousin nation, if you will, of ancient Israel. And the Lord says, I've stripped Esau bare. I've uncovered his hiding places. He will not be able to conceal himself. In other words, people hide because they're afraid. And many times what they're afraid of is God. And even if it's other enemies, their fear is that God won't help them. But what God says is, I see you anyway. I know where you are anyway. I know what's going on in your heart anyway. You can run, but you can't hide. When Daniel had a divine vision 
that I would call a Christophany, a vision of one that he calls a son of man. I think it's Jesus Christ, and that's a common Christian interpretation of the passage. We are told that the men that are with him, they don't have the vision that he has, but great dread falls on them, and they all run away and hide themselves. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 6, you'll remember that there's a scroll with seven seals, and as each seal is broken and the scroll unfurled, there is a, uh, a, a progress of judgment upon the earth. The sixth seal is the penultimate seal, the one next to the last. And after it is open, there's a great earthquake. There's darkening of the sun, the moon turned to blood, the falling of stars, the receding of the heavens like a scroll itself, the moving of every mountain and island. And then the kings of the earth, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the Sauls of that day, and the Sauls' armies of that day, the rich, the mighty, everyone, the slave and the free, they all hide in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains of the rocks, fall on us and hide us. This is, in fact, also a quote from an apocalyptic prophecy of the Lord in the latter prophet Hosea 10. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Let me tell you, if you're living in a time when people say, we have to go under the sea, we have to go into the earth, we have to make caves because of fallout shelters or whatever, watch out. Because I'm not telling you that there isn't trouble coming, but exactly the opposite. The day of the Lord is coming no matter what. You cannot hide from it. Amen. There's no hiding. There's no withstanding. The Lord in Amos says, you can dig all the way down into Sheol. You and I might put it in these terms. You can dig down to hell. You can try and climb up to heaven. But I will find you down there. I will bring you down from up there. Even if you're on the summit of Carmel, I'll find you. You can't conceal yourself from your sight on the floor of the sea, says the Lord. I know where you are. So the Lord is well aware of what's going on. And by the way, he's not far off. Because as soon as Samuel, excuse me, as soon as Saul has made the sacrifice that only Samuel was supposed to make, and Saul has made it before the time that it was supposed to be made, because it was supposed to wait for Samuel's arrival, as soon as Saul has made that slip, then Samuel arrives. And he says, What have you done? I have this vision of it. I, I, I see this being implied in the text that Saul goes out like, hey, you're here. We're so glad you're here. And before Saul says a thing, Samuel has already seen. Because remember the central metaphor of this book also, blindness and sight. And Saul has the feeling that I can hide just like the people. I can hide what I've done. I can hide it with my words and my explanations. But Samuel doesn't need Saul to tell him what has happened. The Lord has already shown him what has happened. What have you done? Well, the people were scattering. And, and I could see that. And then you didn't show up at the appointed time. The days had passed. Seven days, by the way, a creation period, right? You didn't do what you were supposed to do in the time that you were supposed to do it. And the enemy is mounting up around us at Micmash. So I said, now they're going to come down to Gilgal. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill us all. So I forced myself. That's the Hebrew term. I took a hold of myself. That's what it is, literally. I grabbed a hold of myself and did it. But what he's really forcing is he's trying to force God's hand. 
by taking command of what he wants to do. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. If you simply would have done what he asked you to do, then he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Why? Because God is so petty and Samuel is so angry? No, because Saul in taking hold of the situation and putting it on the foundation that he did, put it on a foundation of fear. And what God is saying is a foundation of fear cannot stand. You have built your house on sand and the the flood is coming and the sand will be washed out. If you would have built it on the rock, then it would have withstood. But you chose to build it on the sand. I'm looking, says the Lord, I'm looking for someone who would build their life on the rock. And I am that rock. Someone who would let me be the cornerstone and I'll be their capstone. Someone who would trust in my word. Someone who wouldn't just say they love me, but would show that they love me by believing me and doing what I asked them to do. Now, friend, I want to tell you, you and I are Saul. Over and over again, we've taken hold and set up what we want. And the word of the Lord speaks to us and we say, but I did that because, well, there was all of this and this, and then right here it says that you're going to do something, but that hadn't happened, and so I figured that. And the Lord says, you're doing foolishly. If you're going to live that way, you're going to fall that way. Live that way, die that way. But if you're going to live on the rock... Trust in the rock. Do what he tells you to do. I mentioned that the passage in Revelation quotes from Hosea. In Hosea, there's a passage about judgment on the kingdoms of the earth. And there's a passage or number of passages also about judgment on Israel itself. Samaria is the name for the northern kingdom of Israel in the era when it divided. And the Lord says, Samaria's king will be destroyed. There is absolutely a parallel to be seen here between what is initiated in the kingship of Saul and all these generations down, kings that are operating like him. They're not descendants of his in the flesh, necessarily. They are descendants of his spirit, if you will. They are people who are making the same kinds of choices. So they are following in Saul's steps rather than in God's. And so those kings will be destroyed, the high places of wickedness. You see what Saul did was he took what was supposed to be worship of God and he made it into worship of his own will. God, you will do what we tell you to do. You will give favor to your people. You will give victory to your people on our terms at our time. That is idolatry. Because God says, I have no part in that. So it's not just, oh, it was at the wrong time by the wrong person. To the wrong God. It's like saying to someone, well, yes, I, I went on the honeymoon a little bit early, but that was because I got a much cheaper plane ticket. And then the wife says, yeah, but you went with the wrong woman. <laughs> well, she was here and you weren't here. 
Yeah, and I'm not going to be. You went with her. You live with her. Divorce. Saul divorced God when he took to himself the worship that was rightfully to God and made of it an idol. And that's what you and I do. You see that that's what God's trying to show us. That's what it means to insist on your own will. Don't try and paper over it with the prettiness of words. God sees past that. He sees to the infidelity of our hearts. And the only way to respond like that is, be quiet, sir. Speaking of idols, the only way to respond to that is not to backpedal and try and defend, but to be like David and repent. You say, well, is there no hope for me? There's every hope for you and I in Christ. But there's no hope for the person who says there's no need. I don't need that because I'm good with God. Watch out. Because God may come to you even as you're coming out and saying, oh, it's all good. And God says, what have you done? You've done foolishly. So in Hosea, look what it says. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, that's where Saul was born. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Or actually, the way to translate it literally is, there you took a stand. And it's Saul's stand. It's there you took a hold of things and said, we'll do what we want. And you've stayed in that spirit, and the judgment of the Lord comes against that spirit. War, the war you were trying to win, the war you were trying to avoid, the war that you didn't want is exactly what is going to wash over you like a wave and overtake you, Gibeah, Saul, idolaters. But if you sow righteousness for yourselves and stand firmly on the foundation of the rock, then you can reap the fruit of faith and unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground. Open your heart. It's time to seek the Lord with all your heart. Amen? Amen. Until he comes and showers what on you? Righteousness. Now, there's a very interesting thing here. In the Hebrew term for hiding, remember we've been talking about people hiding, hiding in the rocks, hiding in their hearts, hiding their hearts like hearts of rock from the Lord. That Hebrew term, there is something you may be familiar with, and I know this sounds a little bit arcane, but bear with me for a moment because it'll help give a, a simpler explanation. There's a famous concordance of Hebrew terms, ancient Hebrew terms found in the scripture. It's called Strong's, Strong's Concordance. You can go in that, you can find all the Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament, and they've been categorized according to their etymology. That means their roots. I know this sounds a little bit dry, but bear with me. When you get to the roots of the words, they're organized in order, like roots in a tree. Think of a family tree. You follow along the line, and you can see where things came from. And you get all the way down to the seed bed of things, right? Now, there are two root words for hide and hiding that are connected to each other. And in Strong's, these numbers are all numbered. And I don't remember the exact number uh, of the terms, but it's something like, let me just draw a number comparative out of the air. 2447 and 2445, right? Let's say something like that. So that's how closely related to each other. But there's one number in between, and that's a very similar root. So they're all right there together in, that, in those three roots coming up into the trunk of hiding. And the root in between means beloved. 
And it, it comes from the idea of hidden treasure. So there's hiding and there are things hidden, but sandwiched in the middle of that is love. So there are people who are trying to hide themselves and in doing that, hiding from God, what they aren't really receiving is the love of God that is hidden in plain sight, a mystery that has been revealed in Christ. And Jesus said, if you'll trust in me, he says this in Revelation, I'll give you some of the hidden manna, some of the bread that resources you in the middle of the persecution so that you can patiently, persistently persevere and prevail. So there's an interesting dichotomy between the idea of people are trying to hide from God, but God is trying to show his love. Amen. And in all their hiding, what they're hiding themselves from ultimately is the love of God. You've depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. That's what Saul was afraid of losing. He was more afraid of losing the army than he was of losing the spirit of the Lord. So because of that, the roar of battle will rise against you. Your fortresses will be devastated. So it will happen to you, Bethel, the house of worship in that region, because your wickedness, your idolatry is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. In other words, when the day of God's judgment dawns, this attitude that Saul made a stand for will be ended forever. This failure of Saul has an end. Do you see that that's God's love at work in it? God's saying, you made a mistake, and the mistake is irreparable, except that I will bring the mistake to an end, but there will be no end to my love. I'll bring an end to your hiding, and when your hiding is ripped open, what you'll finally see is my love on display. So stop hiding, and come to the Lord, and come to his love. Earlier in Hosea, there's a famous passage in which the prophet speaks the words of the Lord. I will call beloved the one who was not called beloved. I will say to a people that were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are our God. Now, Saul's name means asked for or desire or desired. God knew that the people would ask for a king and he would give them a king but he wouldn't do what he was asked for. He wouldn't do what God told him to do. Do you know what David's name means? Beloved. There's two kings. One hides in fear and trusts in fear and tries to make his own way. And one trusts in God and says, I don't need your armor, Saul. I don't need sword or spear. I need the Lord. And he strides into the valley of Elah and stands against the giant Goliath and says, you come against me with all your size and strength and weapons, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Amen. Trust in God. You are my God. But Saul doesn't do that, and he slides further away. Samuel arises, he goes up from Gilgal. The rest of the people, what are they going to do? They follow Saul to meet the Philistine army. And they go from that place with about 600 men. You can see how shrunken and scattered the army has become. From 3,000, we're down to these 600 men. Saul and Jonathan and the people 
that are present with them stay in Gibeah of Benjamin. The Philistines encamp nearby in a place called Michmash. And the raiders come out of the camp of the Philistines in three directions. In other words, they're headed in, in different directions so that they can't even assault them because they're going to try and triangulate and surround them and defeat them. Now, as I mentioned, there's no blacksmith. So this army is people that are there with pruning hooks and shears. They don't even they have cattle prods, but they don't have sword and spear. Only Jonathan and David, excuse me, only Jonathan and Saul have uh, traditional weapons. The garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, and they prepare for battle. That's where the chapter ends, and it positions us for what's going to happen next week, which is a story of Saul sort of doubling down on his foolishness, or I think the better way to see it is what Saul has done has begun to erode his judgment even further. And so from one mistake, Saul will go to another. But that's for next week. Let's, let's just make some concluding observations about the closing of this passage because it's perhaps the most important for you and I to take away something today that's most relevant to our world and our lives and our choices. I mentioned that names have meaning. This place that the Philistines encamp in, that we keep hearing about, Michmash, it means hidden or treasure. You see, it, it is in fact a kind of combining of those two terms, hiding and beloved, that we talked about. And it, it seems almost to signal a reflection of this linguistic interplay between hiding by people and the Lord's cherishing his people that has been a kind of a tug of war in the scriptures as we've been looking at. It's as though the city's name is a clue that says, go back to the beginning of Genesis and go forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. And you'll see that this is the real battle that's going on, the battle of whether to trust the Lord or not, the battle of which side will you be on and where will your heart be. Now, this Michmash was east of a place called Beth-Avon. Beth is house. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, house of God. Beth-Avon, house of vanity or wickedness or idolatry. You'd say, well, why would they call it that? It may be that it's a corruption, a, a similar sounding phrase for the Hebrew that would mean house of treasure or house of strength. So what is being described here is a place in which people are saying, this is, what, this is where our heart is, this is where our strength is, but it's in idolatry. It's in vanity. It's in pride and fear. And therefore, it's in wickedness. Over the years, Beth-Avon and Bethel, which are related to each other in close proximity, become somewhat conflated. They have similar names and they have similar ideas, especially because Bethel, Bethel was a place of worship and Beth-Avon becomes known as a place of idolatry and Bethel becomes ultimately a place of idolatry. But notice that these cities are moving progressively east in the descriptions. One is east of the other, and then the next is even further east of that. This eastward direction seems to echo the trajectory of humanity's expulsion from paradise when they were sent out by God east of Eden. In other words, you see people moving further and further and further away from God at the very places where they are supposed to be coming close to him. So what does that tell you and I? that houses of worship like this are directly in the sights of the enemy and that people of God like you are directly in the target of Satan because God wants, excuse me, Satan wants to have your heart because God wants to have your heart. Your heart matters to Satan because it matters to God. Satan will not be honest with you. God always is. 
Satan will try and trick. God never does. God says what he says and means what he says and does what he says. Satan is a liar. So people who say, well, Bethel is the house of God, the prophets say, actually, that's Bethaven because what your house is about, where your heart is, is with fear and with Satan. People trying to get closer to God and actually moving further away. Bethel is a notorious center of syncretistic corruption in which idols are established. And the longer that the eras go by and the division of the kingdom occurs, the greater the idolatry that occurs there, as well as social injustice in the kingdoms and spiritual blindness. As I mentioned, they're often conflated because they were close and because they are both words that relate to good or bad worship. And so Bethaven becomes a byword for false worship. And that's exactly what Saul has done in this moment. He has adulterated worship of the Lord. As I mentioned, Saul means asked for or desired. Saul was asking for and desiring God's help, King Saul, but he wasn't willing to wait on the Lord to receive it or believe the Lord to trust in it. Now, there's another Saul, as I mentioned, in Scripture, and I want to close with this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is named Saul. That is his Hebrew name. But he is called Paul among Greek speakers and in the Latin-speaking world as well because Paul is a Greek and Latin version of Saul, but it does have a different meaning in those languages. It's a diminutive. It's an actual uh, diminution of cease or pause. And it can be thought of, it's used euphemistically as release, release from sin. So look at this. Saul, Paul is born with the name of a rebellious king. And when he is confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus and he falls to his knees, not knowing what it is that God is saying to him, because God is saying, what are you doing, Saul? You're persecuting me. I'm Jesus Christ and I am the Lord. That Saul is willing to cease and desist from his arrogant, proud behavior and his religious confusion and instead humble himself and make himself small so that God can be seen as great in him. And that very Paul, the apostle, gives a sermon in Acts chapter 13 about this era when the people asked for a king and God gave them Saul. And after God removed Saul, he gave David as their king and said, he is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And it's from that heart that Jesus came. From that man's descendants, God has brought the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, David had a heart like that because Jesus loved him. But Jesus entered into our world through the line of David because David loved Jesus and trusted in him. You say, well, David didn't know Jesus. David knew the Lord, and Jesus is the Lord. And here's the heart of David. It's the concluding passage for today. It's a psalm of David. And in Psalm 27, David says to the Lord, teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path. For my enemies are waiting for me. I want to give you an assignment. Read all of Psalm 27 this week. When you read all of Psalm 27, you'll find that David many times over was in exactly the kinds of situation that Saul was in. And in fact, many times, Saul was the one that was the enemy of David. And Saul is trying to kill David. 
And instead of being afraid, and instead of being impatient, David says, wait patiently for the Lord. Will you read these lines that are bolded at the bottom? Read them together. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. The impatience of Saul relates to us all. But the heart of David is an invitation from the heart of God to every single one of us. And it is this. Trust me, says the Lord. And show your trust by obeying me. If you will do what I ask you to do, you will see fulfilled what I have promised to fulfill. Either way, God is going to do it. The question is, what will your heart be on the day of the Lord? And Jesus says, let your heart be in mine, and my heart is for you. Lord, we thank you that you have cherished us and found us in our hiding places. And we ask you, Lord, to make us trusting of you. We repent of ways in which we have grabbed the reins and tried to do our own thing, ways in which we've tried to push you to do something sooner than you were prepared to do it, or ways in which we resisted you when you were calling us to do something that we didn't want to. Whenever, Lord, we have yielded to fear, whenever, Lord, we have doubted in you, we ask that you forgive us. We trust that you forgive us, and we ask that you purify us and help us to live with a heart after you, with trust in you, following you. And Lord, we also ask that you would use us to help lead others to live in that way too. Glory be to your name. Amen.